Hello and welcome to the Synity CFO to CFO podcast series. My name is David Axon and I'm going to be your host through this series of podcasts that explore the deepening relationship between CFOs and the use of data across the enterprise. Nearly every business interaction now creates a digital footprint, creating more and more data that we can begin to infuse into our management reporting analysis and decision-making processes. And CFOs are becoming increasingly active in guiding the governance of that data and the use of that data to ensure that the organization achieves real value. In this series of podcasts, we'll be speaking to some CFOs and practitioners in the space about how their role is changing in the use of data across the enterprise and how they're combining data with talent within their finance organization to deliver ever more value. Please enjoy the series and don't hesitate to follow up with any questions if you would like further information. Hello, everybody. It's David Axon here. Welcome to the CFO to CFO podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined by Synergy's Chief uh, Digital Officer, Chris Nair, who's had a long career both as a CEO, board member, finance executive, as well as moving significantly into the digital and data transformation space. Delighted to welcome you today, Chris. I am delighted to be here, David. Thank you for having me and uh, looking forward to, uh, to chatting this morning. Great. Well, it's been a pretty extraordinary year, 2020. What lessons have you seen that your CFOs of your clients have been learning during this crazy year? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And and uh, as you said, a lot of water under the bridge and a lot of forward-looking opportunity in, in, in 20, uh, 2021. Uh, from a CFO lens, David, I, I, I think there, um, there continues to be a great deal of, of interest in and pressure to optimize. And uh, you know what we've observed in, in working with our client base is that companies are kind of in different moments of still responding to the, the pandemic, recovering and reimagining their business. And, and all of those moments um, from an optimization, so P&L management, uh, working capital management, uh, fixed asset management, and, uh, and kind of uh, long-term capital optimization all of those heavily depend on, uh, on on good data in order to be successful. Uh, I think there's an interesting moment too where, where non-technology companies in particular are struggling with how they're going to grow um, after the pandemic. And, and in a sense, I, I think one might take the view from a, a long-term perspective and certainly from a CEO, CFO lens that, that what's happened in 2020, in addition to the the economic impact that we all understand is almost like a deepening of the digital divide between core technology companies and non-technology or you know, what I would call global value chain incumbent companies. That's a lot of our client base. So we're both spending a significant amount of time from a CFO lens in, in figuring out how do we continue that, let's call it um, unharvested optimization on EBITDA. But let's not make it a zero-sum game let's figure out how we drive a growth agenda and there there you know there are a number of avenues that uh that clients and executives are are pursuing for that yeah i think that's really interesting because one of the, the insights i've gained over the last six to 12 months 
is really how well most organizations have coped with the unprecedented nature of the pandemic. The level of creativity of businesses in continuing to be able to operate, pivoting their business to new business models. And from a finance perspective, the ability of CFOs to husband cash and capital in an efficient way. Uh, there was a study in the Wall Street Journal just last week talking about the growth of cash balances on balance sheets over the second and third quarter, which to me was quite surprising given the speed and nature of the pandemic. So I think we're beginning to see this uh, appreciation of visibility and transparency in data and how that can then be translated into some positive financial outcomes. I think we're seeing that a little bit with the uptick in M&A that's going on at the moment. Following on from that, you have a really interesting and unique perspective based upon your background because you work for one of the world's largest global companies and you've also been CEO of a startup. Now, how do the approaches to realizing value from data differ, or is it the same across the board, regardless of what type of business you're in? It's no, that's an excellent question, and I'd say they're uh, they're they're quite different. So, you know, when I was at I was at Johnson and Johnson for many years, and and I would I'd actually represent that there there are a couple of things that J and J is absolutely world class in. Um, you know, one is sort of the whole research and development and bringing innovative products to market. But the other is, is financial management and financial discipline. J&J, &J, the, the finance function at J&J, &J, um, in, in my view, they're the, the best that I've ever worked with. Um, but that said, you know, J&J, &J is it's essentially a portfolio company, right? So you can, you can think of it as being a collection of different assets that either perform well or don't, and they're in you know, sort of a certain stage of, of life cycle as it relates to, you know, whether they're innovation uh, differentiated or whether they're commodity. And J&J &J is extremely successful at, at, you know, kind of moving through that portfolio to maintain positions in, in differentiated uh, differentiated products. You know, that, that said, um, it, it, can be, uh, it can be slow moving. Um, so there's a whole complicated decision framework um, for anything that you know that, that you need to do, and um, people kind of live and die by that yearly planning cycle, the PL planning cycle, and the capital budgeting cycle, and and that cycle you know it, it is really about two years long. Now on the you know the opposite bookend, working in uh, uh, the, the the startup that I ran for five years, I mean it started with me by myself and you know in my living room and and ended up you know growing to, a, um, you know not not a large but a fairly significant business over the course of five years and you know in in startup world you're you're almost managing everything week to week. Now what I think is instructive to your point on you know cash balance management, it's almost like. Um, for you know, for enterprise clients, that that, that forced uh, a reckoning and kind of bringing those two approaches together, which again underscores the importance of of you know good, timely, granular data for agile decision making. So you know, uh, companies like J and J and many of our clients have demonstrated resilience and the ability to sort of leap into that that agile mode. So in um, there's been, an, you know, a phrase that I'm sure you've heard of in uh, in uh, the past ten years, really, about um, bimodal information technology, right? Which is this idea: you want your sort of flagship programs, but then you want these, you know, experimental, agile things that show proof of value quickly. I think what we've witnessed from a, a finance management lens, a CFO lens, this year is is bimodal finance in enterprises, which kind of brings 
those two moments together, you know, and, and I, I know I'm a bit of a broken record because I am a data guy. Uh, you know, companies that do data well have got an advantage in being able to execute on that that bimodal approach that kind of brings the, you know, the the big heavy thoughtful enterprise and the you know the nimble kind of commando of the startup agile approach together. Yeah, and I think finance teams are beginning to embrace that and the the ability to be able to construct their own frameworks and models without having to rely on the central IT function, but still having the confidence that that central discipline and governance is in place to be able to manage the data asset across the enterprise. I think there's an interesting uh, balance point there uh, that I'm seeing organizations think about. One of the other things that I'm beginning to see, I'd be interested in your point of view on, is with respect to technology, what I'm almost seeing is almost a democratization of access to technology. You know, with the advent of cloud and software as a service, you no longer need to necessarily be a J&J to be able to access the latest and greatest tools and technology. Even relatively small, not the smallest maybe, but even relatively small mid-sized companies can access tools that can help them better manage and govern data, better do visualization, perform more advanced analytics. You know, in the old days, the only tool they had was the spreadsheet and they made it do everything. So I think this democratization is really helping both small and mid-sized companies achieve some of the discipline and some of the value that larger companies are beginning to realize. Do you see that as well? Um, I, I do see that, David, but I, I think there's a there's a caveat that, that it, there's that moment of we've got new tools and new capabilities and they've been commoditized, but there's also a moment of there, there are almost, uh, the palette is almost too rich in a way. And what I, what I actually see across the board is, is companies struggling to figure out, you know, where, where do I place my bets from a technology perspective? Like what's going to, you know, what, what capabilities are going to be meaningful and you know, the other thing that I think is it's both a, um, a CIO and a CFO challenge is that the, you know, since I've been working 20 plus years in this space, I think we all would have said 20 years ago that things were going to get simpler. And in fact, they've gotten a lot more complicated. And as core, you know, what I would call enterprise systems of record, ERP, high ceremony data warehouse, all of that have been disintermediated by, you know, kind of upstarts in the cloud world. They're, now everyone's got all the complexity they had 20 years ago, plus it's been, you know, peeled apart by different kinds of cloud technologies. All, all of which is to say there are, there are pearls there. You can do a lot more with a lot less investment, but it requires, um, kind of leadership and a thought process about, you know, where you want to place your bets from a technology perspective uh, in order to maintain that governance, which, which obviously if you're doing, um, you know, CFO lens, right, in a way, one of the most important functions to me of the CFO is, is decision support, strategic decision support. So you want to make sure that, you know, the underlying analysis is correct um, and that it hasn't been, uh, uh, compromised by shiny objects, I guess, if, uh, you know, if, uh, if I could say it that way. Yes, it's a challenge. I sometimes feel like CFOs are sort of like walking into a candy store and there are so many different choices on the shelves. It's sometimes difficult to work out which are the right ones for your organization at that particular point in time. 
Yeah. You mentioned if I, just to just to interject on that that point to close out that thought, I I I think it's it's very important from an executive lens. So you know, my advice is don't lose the discipline on on governance, governance of data, and governance of of, of people, process, and technology as it relates to these decisions. Right. So even though there are all these you know super cool capabilities out there. The, uh, if you will, the old-fashioned discipline that we applied to making sure that all the pieces fit together smoothly is still is still extremely important. Yeah, the analysis is only as good as the data underpins it. So. Indeed, indeed. You mentioned growth opportunities earlier, and you know one of the things that I've seen over the last few weeks and months is a fairly significant uptake in discussion and actually action around M&A activity. As companies look for value out there in the marketplace, maybe look to put some of the cash and capital they've been able to conserve over the last six to 12 months to work. M&A is a very uh, specific type of activity that has a mixed track record, frankly. Uh, and I'm beginning to see that CFOs are beginning to start to think about the value of the tools and technologies around data to help them, not just in the integration and day one operation, but also in upfront due diligence. How do you see that moving forward in the future in terms of easing the pain of integration so that those synergy savings and long-term strategic benefits are, are more probable, more likely to be realized? Yeah, great question. And, and you know, backdrop, we see the same thing. So uh, our, our business currently is, and historically is about 40% M&A related, a lot of integration work, but a lot of uh, inc an increasing amount of work on, on the front end as well. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think both on the buy side and on the sell side, if you, you think about um, the life cycle of a deal from kind of, you know, the, the shopping phase to the due diligence phase, preparation, integration, and then cleanup, uh, there's a dawning awareness that data is, is critically important in all of those phases. And, and to your point on, you know, M&A um, having kind of a, a, a checkered past, you know, it's fairly often the case that the the um, growth synergies are not realized. And you know what um, what we do and what I would kind of advocate everyone do is is get you know all the tools we were just talking about, digital clean room as an example, do the empirical analysis up front. Uh, I think too often you know the deals are um, uh, look very exciting, but at the next level of detail down, not much has been done beyond, you know, sort of a, a high value management consulting type framework analysis, you know, by consultants or by investment bankers. And, um, you know, my, my plea to get the value out of the deal is, you know, let's go a couple of levels deeper. And if the story is, you know, a, a geo synergy or a cross product line or a cross market synergy, it's actually possible now to do that analysis on a pro forma basis up front at a, at a very granular level. You don't have to wait until you get into the integration phase to discover that, you know, the growth synergy that you sold the deal on is not actually there. And, it, you know, those are kind of the, the two the two ways that the, the deals afterwards don't have a good value is if the growth isn't there or if the integration is botched and, you know, um, Due diligence as it relates to data is, you know, is extremely important in, uh, in, in both those veins. The, the other thing that, you know, um, I'd offer and what we see, this is not a mature area, but every, uh, every banker and every high value ad consultancy and every acquisitive company I, I talk to is very interested in getting a better quantification of data as an asset. So essentially, the, you know, if you think of data, 
a data pool as essentially being uh, capital in the form of information. Under, uh, at least under US GAAP rules, there's really no way of valuing that except as goodwill, which is you know, more art than science. So one of the, the trends that I, um, you know, we're exploring and that I, I encourage all financial leaders to explore is how do we, you know, over the next three to five years in an environment we know is gonna be rich with M&A and kind of tied to a digital transformation agenda, how do we bring that balance of valuing data as an asset more into the realm of science from the realm of, of art where it currently is. Yeah, and I see that following some of the work that's been done over the years in trying to value and measure things like brand equity. You know, data as an asset has similar characteristics uh, and can generate real value if you start to think about things like the network effect of combining customer databases and being able to understand customer needs in that context. So well, I think there's yeah. some interesting opportunities yeah. there. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, you could do a thought experiment where if you were to value a pure, you know, say, say, say um, this is really a thought experiment, right? Say you were going to buy Google. Like, how would you value Google? You know, the, the, it, so it has physical assets in the form of servers, but most of its asset is actually capital in the form of pooled information. And so there's there's not really, in my view, an accepted way of valuing that. And I, I, I uh, my, my hope is that that's a bit more amenable to quantification than brand equity over time, and that that's actually something from you know, kind of a, a data services, data science um, mm -hmm. perspective that we can bring to the table collectively, uh, you know, as, as uh, again, as we're expecting a, a lot of deal volume in the next couple of years. I think that's great insight. Finally, Chris, looking to the future, what do you see as the most significant or exciting developments that are really going to help organizations, you know, monetize the data asset? Well, um, you know, one thing that, that I think is, uh, I'll say it's both a huge risk and a huge opportunity. And, I, and I'll go back to the discussion we had about the, the digital divide between you know, core technology and um, you know, kind of the, the old industry companies. Um, the old industry companies are, are really looking for growth. And I, I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity for uh, companies to reconnect with their business to business to consumer base in a way that has been changed. It's changed a lot with all of the ad tech platforms in the last uh, 10 years in particular, so that there's really been an acceleration of disintermediation of the end customer uh, from companies that produce goods and services by pure play technology companies. So, so you know, my, um, my, my, and, and I think you can see, you know, suddenly there's an explosion of interest and, and energy around consumer data privacy, consumer data protection, and the idea that um, there, there's growth in understanding what consumers want rather than continuing to aggressively serve a, a myriad of ads to them all the time. So, you know, look, I bring that up because I think that, the, you know, the data opportunities on the, the sort of the, the, uh, the AI, digital transformation, EBITDA, you know, continuing to harvest EBITDA optimization, um, those are all fairly straightforward. Everyone's working on all that already. Uh, what what um, the, the excitement that I see and the excitement that we have is, is uh, working on the ecosystem in a way that we can reconnect to primary demand. And, and um, you know, uh, I believe that there's a, a critical opportunity to do that through 
reconnecting with customers um, under an improved umbrella of privacy and security in a way that is really not typified by the, the consumer experience and even the B2B experience of today. So what, what you know, my, uh, my exhortation for anyone in the data space and CFOs in particular is of course, you know, you're, you, I, I don't have to tell CFOs not to forget about EBITDA, but what I would encourage is, is look, let's, let's look at where the growth is and how we improve growth by reconnecting to primary demand in terms of what the market wants um, in a way that you know takes us a, a, a bit, if, if you will, it takes a step back to take two steps steps forward with respect to how we're collectively interacting with the with the uh, the big data ad tech stack. Making sure we connect it to value. Chris yeah. Neck, uh, Chief Digital Officer at Synity, thank you so much for your time today. Some wonderful insights there, and thank you for joining this podcast. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation and uh, hope, uh, hope you have a terrific rest of the day. And uh, thank you to the audience for listening. Thank you.